episode 46 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about Canadian versus Irish literature and two novels by, well, hmm, novels question mark, by Elizabeth Strout <laughs> um, called My Name is Lucy Barton and Anything is Possible. Um, but before we do that, Rachel, how are you? What's up? What are you reading? Oh, lots of questions. So many um, I'm questions. very well, thank you. <laughs> um, you know, you're just holding on till half term, really. Um, but nearly there. I believe in um, you. Yeah, I can do this. There's one more week to go. Um, and I've been reading quite a lot lately, actually. Um, I've just finished yeah. Silas Marner yesterday by George Eliot, mm. which I'm being a bit of a geek for university because we're, we're doing Middlemarch, and I thought, I'm going to be that person who <laughs> reads outside of what we need to read. And it's really smug in class, and I'm like, so actually this does echo Silas Marner. Oh, you remind me of the people in my English class as an undergraduate who... There's, there's a guy who'd read, who's a very nice guy, but he'd read Ulysses and he read Paradise Lost before we had to. And everything reminded him <laughs> of one or the other of them. It's like, it's just like, okay, calm down. You read it, whatever. <laughs> I'm not going to be that, that annoying. <laughs> I promise. Um, but I enjoyed it much more than I thought I would, actually. Um, okay, because we talked about Midmarch last time, or I think you mentioned it. Yeah. Which I like, but it's, you know, it's about 400 pages too long. Wow, that's um, a lot of pages. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seeing as it's like 800 pages, it could <laughs> easily be half the length. Um, and Silas Minor is much shorter, much more manageable, and it's very sort of, I suppose, heart, heart-rending and uplifting at the same time. It was nice. And I was really pleased that nobody died at the end. Right. <laughs> I was quite traumatised by The Mill on the Floss when I read that at, when I was an undergraduate, which is another one of George Eliot's books. And, you know, you just get to the point where you really like everyone and then literally everyone dies. <laughs> in the most horrific way imaginable. We should um, have talked about it, didn't we? But, so Silas Marner lives to tell the tale, does he? He does live to tell the tale. And it's all very nice and, and heartwarming and, you know, emotional. So I enjoyed that very much. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm now half, well, I'm just over halfway through my final William Maxwell novel, which I'm, I'm kind of dragging out because I don't want to not have any, I mean, I've still got his short stories to read, but it's not the same. Um, but it's the folded leaf that I'm reading Mm. and I can, I can see where it's going and I don't want it to go there. So I'm kind of rationing how much I read. (laughs) Uh, but I guess there's all sorts of books that probably do gain on rereading as well. Yes. Just, I'm yeah. enjoying those very much. How about you? What are you? Oh, I know what you're reading. Ugh. Well, actually, I have finished <laughs> the book you're referring to, um, which I assume you're referring to, Jacob's Room is Full of Books yeah. by Susan Hill, a sort of sequel to uh, Howard's Enders on the Landing, which we talked about in, I believe, episode 22. Oh. Um, <laughs> which I recall because it's one of our most popular episodes, perhaps because everybody loves Howard's Enders on the Landing so much. Um, no. <laughs> Perhaps it's because whatever we talked about in the first half, which I can't remember. But um, our most popular episode, incidentally, is episode 18, where we talked about Agatha Christie. So there you go. A lot of Agatha Christie fans out there. Oh. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so it's a sort of sequel to that, um, which was about, supposedly at least, about a year of breeding from home. And this is more, like, it follows the calendar year, for, um, and it's sort of just, like, incidental thoughts about the books that she's reading, literary memories. That's quite a lot about birds and flowers, which, you know... I, Less interested in, <laughs> but, uh, but um, I raced through it. I loved it. I disagreed with a lot of it. It made me cross, but in a, in that sort of nice way when you have like a heated argument with someone about books. Um, in fact, much like we had in episode twenty-two. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so if you didn't like *Howard's End of the Landing*, you definitely won't like this. But if you loved *Howard's End of the Landing*, you will also love this. <laughs> Well, you know, I shan't be reading it. I saw it in foils, and then I thought, I bet Simon's already got this. I've got to text him immediately. Yes. And I just, my whole, I, I looked at it, and inside my head, I said, ugh, to myself. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I had indeed, by the time you texted me, it was, I think I was already halfway through it. Yeah. It was one of the books I, I bought during Project 24. It's one of my 24 books for the year, because I was so excited about it. Well, what a waste is all I can say to that. <laughs> well, I was quietly waiting to see if they'd send me a copy, but they didn't, so... <laughs> oh, Simon. Yeah, and I was so... I eulogised so much about um, how it ends on the landing. One thing I don't like about it, which I have complained about in my review, is the title. Because how it ends on the landing works sort of on two levels, like the book is on the landing. Yeah. Whereas Jacob's room is full of books doesn't mean anything. No, it means absolutely nothing, mm. which is another reason why it deserves a <laughs> 
Oh, really <laughs> <picked> up. <laughs> oh dear. Um, but the book I am currently reading, or one of the books I'm currently reading, is um, uh, what's it called? Um, another part That's of thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's called Another Part of the Woods. It's something like that uh, by Beryl Bainbridge. Oh. Which was published in 1968, which I'm do- reading in preparation for the 1968 Club, which is the latest um, in th- in the series that Karen and I run, where we get everyone to read books from 1968. And I discovered I have 24 books, I think, or 23 books, which were published in 1968, so lots to choose from. None uh, of which you've read, presumably. I have read, actually, some of them. I oh. have. Um, not not many, but, <laughs> but some. Um, and I haven't read this one, obviously, um, and I picked it because it's short. But I um, I do like... Have you read Beryl, any, uh, any Beryl Bainbridge? I haven't, no. I didn't think it should be in my cup of tea. I don't know, actually. <laughs> um, I first read her when Annabelle, um, at Annabelle's House of Books, ran a Beryl Bainbridge reading week. And I read uh, Sweet William and Injury Time. And the particularly Injury Time, which I thought was fantastic, is very bizarre. It's like sort of like Abigail's party meets, like, well, there's a hostage situation, basically, in oh. in the in a middle of a dinner party. Um, and I... I think she's quite sort of bizarre, but in quite a grounded way. And then the second half of Korea, she wrote mostly historical fiction, which I haven't read any of because, you know, me and historical fiction. Yeah. But um, this one is about people in cabins in the woods. I haven't really worked out. I mean, I'm, in, I'm maybe a third <laughs> of the way through and I haven't worked out what's going on or why, but, <laughs> but I'm enjoying it nonetheless. Well, that's something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know if it's the one I'd recommend people to start with. Um, but, but, uh, but injury time, I think, is fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I have a question for you about, um, you know, your yearly reading challenges. Oh, yes. Do you tend to find that there is a sort of thread that runs through books that have been published in the same year, or do they just tend to be as disparate as anything else? It's interesting. Good question. I think there's always quite a lot of variety, but I think there is... Um, particularly when we did, I think, 1938 and 1947, there's quite a lot of the sort of antebellum and postbellum, I guess, um, <laughs> f- feel to them. Like, particularly in 1947, you could either, you could sense this sort of wave of people not wanting to think about the war. Yeah. It, it, it was sort of weird how it, w- it wasn't mentioned in that many of the books people were writing about, but it, you could feel it being there. Mm. Um, and obviously, like, more as it changed, change, quite a lot and things that are from the 1960s are obviously different from things from the 1920s um i wouldn't say there's ever such thing as a completely unifying character to a year but but yeah i always just find it fascinating to see all those different threads and how they interlink i guess um just yeah by by reading all the reviews that people write because we usually get maybe like 50 or so people or 50 or so uh, reviews not always 50 different books but um but yeah, uh, and it puts together a really interesting portrait. And I'm excited about reading, finally, years after I bought it, Frank Baker's Autobiography, which is one of the 1968 books. Frank Baker of Miss Hargrove's fame. Oh, I see. Yeah. Wow. I'm surprised it's taken you this long. I know. It's all, you know do you ever have those books where you just, you're so excited about reading it that you just never do? <laughs> no, I always read them straight away, I have to say. If I'm that excited, I need to read it immediately. Because I always think, like, oh, I've got a slight headache. I don't want to ruin the reading experience. Or, like, oh, I'm just a bit tired. I don't, but this, I know this book's going to be brilliant. I need to be absolutely perfect reading conditions to properly appreciate it. You're mad. <laughs> Please let me know, dear listener, if um, any of you do the same. Is it just me? Am I insane? Perhaps. Nobody does. <laughs> there must be one person out there. There's always someone who sides with me in the end. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, always it's, it's more often people who side with you, but you know, you're very persuasive. And also sensible. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I will be taking, prepare yourself for quite the segue, um, this um, Frank Baker's book on my trip to Canada that I'm going on next oh. week. Yeah. So in honour of my trip, which I'm taking with my brother to Toronto, um, or Toronto, as I'm going to have to try and learn how to, to say. <laughs> um, gosh, I've never sounded more English. But... Um, <laughs> We are going to do Canadian versus Irish literature, which is a topic that I came up with with some foreboding because I don't think it's, there's necessarily anything that unifies Canadian or Irish literature, but let's do our best nonetheless. We'll do what we can. We can, yes. And I think, well, there's, there's, 
whilst there isn't going to be anything that marks out all Canadians for being the same, or all Irish people being the same, or all Canadian writers being the same, or all Irish writers being the same, there might be sort of a keynote in in the books that have come to fame in those countries, perhaps. 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 We can but hope. Yes. Would you like to start the ball rolling with any thoughts or books you've read um, relating to Canadian or Irish literature? Have you read many? Well, Simon, I've you know, just been trying to think about this, actually, seeing as I didn't realise we were talking about this until about two minutes ago. Please, <laughs> um, change, but yes. <laughs> this happens to me every week. So I'm good at thinking on my feet. Um, well, I mean, obviously, the most famous example of Canadian literature I've read is, is Margaret Atwood. And then... Um, I've also read Alison, Alice Munro's short stories. Mm. Um, but other than those two, nobody who's sort of pr- prominently Canadian comes to mind. Prominently um, Canadian. <laughs> in the sense that, like, I know that they're Canadian. Oh, I see what you mean. mean. Yes. Um, and I suppose I can't think of any particular similarities between Margaret Atwood and, and Alice Munro. And, or, I mean, they're both quite feminist writers, I think. But I feel like with Margaret Atwood's writing, you don't really get a sense that she's Canadian or is particularly writing about Canada in general, whereas Alice Munro is definitely tied to place. And she does write about Canada and the Canadian wilderness and the landscape and things, which I find quite interesting when I read her stories because, you know, I don't really know much about Canada and I haven't travelled extensively throughout Canada. I've been to a few places, but not... Um, very far. Um, Irish literature, I have read quite a lot of. Um, most predominantly Elizabeth Bowen, who I love. Oh, yes, I suppose she is Irish, isn't she? She is Irish. <laughs> I yes. never think of her as Irish. Yeah, she is Anglo Irish, I suppose. And um, also Molly Keane's novels, which are set in, um, or MJ Farrell. Most of her, I think, early Irish novels are under her original, um, under her mm-hmm. actual name. Um, and those are really interesting in looking at, at that pre war big house life on the Anglo-Irish estates and all of the tension between the Irish and the English and the settlers and things like that. But in t- I know there's, I mean, I've read some, um, I'm trying to can't think of anyone's names. Um, who wrote Brooklyn? Uh, Com Toibin. Yes. Thank you for pronouncing that for me. <laughs> I see what um, you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of his name. Um, I've read his book, um, a few that, of his books. And um, I find there's a few, and I've, there's a few modern Irish writers. And um, actually, my, one of my favourite poets, Seamus Heaney, was Irish as well. And I really find it interesting them writing about Irish identity. And I think Ireland has got such an interesting history in terms of so many people leaving Ireland to go to other places. And that idea of em- emigration and belonging comes through really strongly. And also a real sense of connection to the Irish landscape which I really enjoy and there's some, also some wonderful um, plays as well that are set in Ireland that I really like I really love Brian Friel's plays as well so I'd say Irish literature I'm more comfortable with and have read a variety from sort of novels to plays to poetry and I find that voice really interesting um, and I think from what I've read I find that Irish literature tends to have that common thread of of belonging and, and talking about place and what it is to be Irish and what it is to be Irish when you're not in Ireland and that kind of idea when whereas Canadian literature I don't think I've read enough to be able to to get a sense of what what it is perhaps you've read more than me well I've read some Canadian literature I don't think so I've read I've read a couple of books by Margaret Atwood I've read one by Alice Munro um I haven't read anything by Carol Shields, who I believe is also a famous oh, I Canadian love writer. Carol Shields. Ah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> She's Canadian, isn't she? She is Canadian, and I read, I uh, went through a phase of reading loads of her books when I was younger, and they're wonderful. But I don't really remember again. She's a bit like Margaret Atwood. Her stories are set in Canada, but there's not. It's kind of incidental. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Um, I've read. A couple, or maybe just one book by Margaret Lawrence, uh, The Stone Angel, which um, I think is fantastic. It's sort of, um, oh gosh, it's been such a long time. Someone suddenly, want, uh, I think it's an old lady who is, is um, losing her faculty slightly, who, who's wandering through that landscape. And I think, I, mean, I, I know very little about Canadian history or Canada, but obviously know that it's very big and lots of it is quite isolated. And I think there is... It's certainly in some Canadian literature likely to be that sort of emphasis on on wide open landscapes and things. The example that came to my mind was The Tenderness of Wolves by Steph Penny. And I couldn't remember if that was actually Canadian or not. 
Um, <laughs> we mentioned it last time, didn't we? I can't remember if it's Canadian or Alaskan. I'm just going to quickly Google it. Um, but yes, I mentioned that because it had won the Costa Prize. That's, that's, I missed that last time for that reason. But um, it's... Ooh, she's Scottish. <laughs> okay, <laughs> she is neither Canadian nor, <laughs> nor Alaskan. Where is the... Tenderness of Wolves set. Oh, Tenderness of Wolves is set in Canada. That's why I was getting me confused. There we she's are. She's an interloper. She's from Scotland. So <laughs> ignore that one. But, um, yeah, I think there, there is the, you know, there will be certain writers who write about those great open expanses that you can't really do in Ireland <laughs> or in no. many other countries. Um, but my favourite Canadian writer is Stephen Leacock. Um, oh. and indeed, I will be visiting his house, which is, um, in a, in a town called I think it's pronounced Aurelia, which is um, about an hour and a half away from Toronto. So we're taking a, a day trip there. Um, and in penance, I have to go to ice hockey. <laughs> so <laughs> we're like, well, if you do mine, I'll do yours. This was the exchange that Colin and I had on that one. But um, I was obsessed with his books when I was maybe 16, 17, 18. Um, and I haven't read, read any since until late last year. I read... Um, what was it called? Over the Footlights, which was, um, he was a humorist and, and these, these particular ones were basically fake plays or exaggerated versions of types of plays. So there's like the, the Victorian melodrama and there's the, the, you know, moral play of the 1920s sort of thing. Um, but usually his, yeah, his books are sketches and funny stories and, and he has a slightly surreal sense of humor, but, um, very warm, and I just, I just love him as a writer. Uh, and he's still well known in Canada, I think, and quite a lot of you know schools and whatever are named after him. But outside of Canada, not that many people have heard of him, <laughs> I think. Um, and he was writing in the 1910s and 20s, and round about them. So is he? Is that a uniquely Canadian sense of humour? I don't know. Well, obviously not, because I share it. But um, but I don't think he's particularly representative of Canada. But he's certainly my favourite Canadian writer. Well, have you, do you know Stephen Leacock? Have I talked about him before? You have, but I haven't read any of his books, I have to say. Hmm. Um, but uh, I think, you know, it's quite interesting when you try and, and talk about countries and traditions of writing because, I mean, we've tried to talk about this before and got ourselves into hot water. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think it's quite hard to say there's a particular national voice or a national preoccupation. Um, but I do think it's quite interesting that both Canada and Ireland have got, um, obviously they've linked, they're both Commonwealth, um, or like links to English, to British history and that kind of thing. You've got a lot of British people moving to Canada, particularly Scottish people. There's a huge Scottish population mm -hmm. in Canada. Um, and also I find Canada really interesting because you've got this split between the French culture and the English culture. Yeah, and, um, there are probably hundreds of thousands of French Canadian writers that we don't know about because we don't read their work in French. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a kind of an interesting country in that way because you've got that sense of division. And then so has Ireland as well. Um, so as places, they are actually have got a lot of similarities. They might not, you know, Canada's obviously enormous and Ireland not so much, but. In, in sense of also population, I mean, Ireland is incredibly sparsely populated, as is Canada. Mm. And I think perhaps there's more in common than we would think on, on the surface. And certainly I'd be interested to read more books of that kind of Canadian experience of being out in the wilderness or having come from somewhere else. In fact, I just read, I think this is set in Canada. No, it's set in Alaska. Why do I always think that? <laughs> Um, they are very close to each other. <laughs> they are very close to each other, and they're both quite cold. That's I think that's yeah. what I think in my head. Um, but that sense of um, belonging and not belonging, and being in a place that is a sense kind of unpopulated or uncivilized in some way, not in the sense of you know being full of feral people, but in the sense of of not having big cities and things like that, and of there being that process of of kind of settling certainly in the 19th century I think it's really interesting and I'm surprised actually that we don't I mean maybe it's just our ignorance but I feel like probably yes but um that there aren't these kind of real you know 
novels of Ireland or novels of Canada that we've all heard of? Because, I mean, I'd certainly be really interested in reading them. Well, I'm sure there are. I'm sure people yeah. try And, and indeed, one that's, just, one that's just come to mind is, of course, Anne of Green Gables. Oh, yes, that great Canadian classic. Yeah. Um, which, I, I mean, I don't know enough about Canada and, and America to know what makes it distinctly Canadian, but it's certainly you've got a, a beautiful sense of place in in um, her, what's the place called? I can't remember. Prince Edward Island. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, yeah, and it's interesting what you say about um, relationships with the English you said a while ago. Like, I, I read Brian Friel's translations at school. Yeah, I love um, that place. I think I probably would if I hadn't done it at school. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and there's, yes, you mentioned the Bowen and, and the Keen, um both wrote novels about the Irish troubles, as it were, in the, was it 20s? Uh, Lamentably be ignorant. Before but, then, I think. Okay. But turn of the century, I guess. Yeah. Um, before World War One. Oh, yes, you're quite right. So, yes, 1910s, yeah. let's say. Um, and then you get the writers from Ireland, like Oscar Wilde and George Bernard Shaw, who were very obviously extremely famous, um, but as far as I know, didn't write about Ireland very much. Um, no. I mean, I guess lived in England a lot of the time. Um, and of course, it's James Joyce. So yes. <laughs> they've got some bit, I know who, of course, does write about Ireland extensively. Um, very extensively. But, yeah. um, there's very little that links <laughs> these writers in terms of character, I guess. Yeah, I think, you know, Irish novels, I, I do enjoy reading about Ireland and Irish people, and, and there is a real sense of that kind of, a, a real sen- sense of a national culture, I think. There's this kind of mystical quality to Ireland, certainly in, pop- in popular culture, and, you know, the kind of the, the, the countryside and the green spaces and the, and the kind of fairy creatures and things like that. Certainly when I visited Ireland, that's been something that's, that there's lots of local folk myths and things like that that are really interesting to read about. Um, and I think because Ireland is quite a country steeped in mystery and heritage and things like that, there are loads of wonderful stories waiting to be told. And there are lots of, I'm sure, Irish writers who do write about those things, but I never really see them, those books being publicised. Yeah, as you say, because I mean, as you say, they've got a, a, a rich Celtic history. Um... But none of the writers we've mentioned so far <laughs> have written about that. And I'm sure, as you say, lots of people probably have. But um, I guess people from the, from the books we've talked about are either decided I'm just going to go away into literary culture in London, say, and just yeah. make my life there, particularly, you know, earlier in the 20th century um, or in the Victorian period. Um, or I'm going to write about contemporary issues. I'm sure there are lots of people who wrote about the more recent um, Travels in Ireland as well, but yeah. don't, don't read many modern novels, so I don't know. <laughs> um, and I just haven't come across the ones who would write about Irish um, heritage and Irish, you know, that sort of mystical culture that I don't know when that developed or <laughs> as a sort of folklore and all that sort of thing. But, um, presumably time out of mind sort of thing. As opposed to Canada, which I believe is celebrating its 150th birthday this year. Is it? So- oh, yes, it is. I've seen a flag outside Canada House in London. Oh, okay. So, yes, the flat I live in is significantly older than the nation of Canada. But um, I, I don't know how much Canadian writers... I'm sure lots of Canadian writers have written about um, the history of Canada. But... Yes, recommendations, please, people. We are, as usual, coming from a place of almost total ignorance. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I would love to be enlightened, and I think that it would be lovely to promote and encourage more national novels or novels that talk about the experience of, of being from a particular place, because I do, I do think that we don't get enough exposure to other people's narr- narratives of other people's experiences and narratives of other countries. There's certainly... You know, whenever I go and look in the bookshop, most of the books that are on display are books written by British people and they're set in Britain. Um, They're doing better at that kind of more, perhaps, I suppose, refugee-type stories and things from kind of people who've, like, talking about Syria and and Iraq and the Middle East and those sorts of places. There's definitely more novels like that and also novels about Africa and stuff, but I never really see 
novels about you know more I suppose not obscure countries but countries that don't that, that haven't got issues or particular currency in modern debate if you see what I mean yeah, and I do wonder also if there's anything in the fact that novels that are intensely about the experience of being Canadian or being Irish perhaps have a vibrant market in Canada and in Ireland, but maybe aren't the ones that publishers elsewhere pick up or aren't the ones that have yeah. good success overseas. Um, which is, again, yeah, I'm really interested to know if we have any Canadian or Irish listeners about which books you think most represent perhaps modern life in um in your cities or in your rural areas or wherever. Um, I think the most recent Irish novel I've read is probably by Jennifer Johnston, which was The Gingerbread Woman. Um, and that's going, that must be at least 15 years old. Um, and it's mostly about gonorrhea as far as memory serves, or at least, <laughs> <laughs> or at least some sort of sexually transmitted infection. Um, um, and we, I didn't particularly enjoy it, and that wasn't the only reason. Um, I, <laughs> I know that Kim, who blogs at Reading Matters, is a big fan of her writing, and, but I, I did find it hard to work out um, why she's held in such high esteem. But um, but that is so often true when I read modern lit novels. <laughs> so I often feel left behind. Yes, I mean, likewise. I would be actually really interested to see um, the kind of sales figures for books in different countries and see whether there is a massive difference and whether there are, you know, local authors that we just don't that they don't publicize outside of their own countries yeah yeah so i mean i just thought i find this is you know following on from my rant about publishing houses last week um i think that there are a lot of decisions made by publishers based on what they assume people will and won't want to read and i don't think that enough choice is given to us to make our own minds up about these things i think there's this kind of like oh well there won't be a market for this canadian book in england for example like why not we yeah. don't all just want to read about our own countries and our own experiences. I love reading about other people's experiences. Particularly as the world in general seems to be becoming more and more nationalistic in each of its well, exactly. countries. I think it's important that we do try to understand the cultures of, of others more. And that can be, you know, a very different and distant culture, or it can be one that is seemingly quite similar, um, yeah. like an English-speaking country is still you know, sufficiently different, I'm sure, in many ways. Um, well, very much so. Yes, or indeed, even just, you know, reading outside of, certainly for me, my, you know, middle-class life, it's always good to read about anything that's outside of one's experience. And I need to remind myself of this more as I continue to read my housewife novels from the 1930s. <laughs> <laughs> Which I suppose is, you know, I'm not a housewife from the 1930s. So. No, exactly. You're yes. branching out already, Simon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm branching out so successfully that I seldom leave that branch. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I do hope we haven't gravely offended anyone from Canada or, or Ireland, and we're the gaps of our ignorance are only places where we want more knowledge. But we've come, we've come yeah. to the Teal Books decision, perhaps. Um, which, based on what on what you have read, would you pick between Canadian literature and Irish literature? I think for me, because of the the sort of troubled history, I I find stuff about Ireland really interesting because it helps me to understand the history more and to appreciate the the conflict that's still very much at, at the heart of mm-hmm. of Irish and and English relations. So that I would go for, for Irish literature for me. Not that I don't, I'm not interested in Canadian literature, I just haven't read enough of it, and I'd be very glad to be educated on that front. Great, yes, and I think probably soaring away on the strength of Stephen Leacock and how much I love him, <laughs> um, <laughs> he's going to carry the weight of Canadian literature on his back, and I'm going to pick that. <laughs> so there yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, in the second half, we were talking about American writer. Um, I believe American, yes. Um now you, oh yes, Elizabeth Strout and her novels are My Name is Lucy Barton and Anything is Possible. And you have talked about at least one of those on the podcast before, I think. So it was your enthusiasm for them um, whilst in the midst of reading long Victorian books and not being able to read for the podcast. <laughs> Let me <laughs> to go out and seek these. <laughs> um, so do you want to, have any, do you have any preference for which one you introduce us to? No, not at all. What would you like? Um, oh, I'll go for my name is Lucy Barton. Okay. Um, very briefly, I think, because it's quite a, it's, it is a brief and simply told novel. And it's, yeah. um, it's, a, the narrator is called Lucy Barton. <laughs> um, 
and it starts with her remembering a time that she was recovering from operation in hospital. Um, and it's a time which her mother came to visit her, uh, having not seen her for, for many years. She sort of wakes up from this operation and her mother's managed to find her way there and she doesn't quite know how she's managed to get there. Um, and the rest of the novel sort of charts the present day as, or no, not, in fact, not the present day, the, that memory, um, with even further back as she thinks about um, her childhood in a small town that she was desperate to escape. Um, talks about her brothers and sisters, talks a little bit about her father, but the main um, keynote of it to me is mystery, and it is just, you're never, you're never quite sure what's gone on in the childhood, you never, there's a lot of silences in their relationship now. Um, and it's a, I think, it, I will lay my cards on the table now, a very good novel about strains in a relationship when things aren't spoken aloud. Um, yeah. And the reader feels also out of the loop, I think. You're, that you are, you're feeling the strain in that relationship because you also aren't seeing the whole picture. And you're feeling sort of a strain in your own relationship with the novel. Yeah. That would do now. Um, over to you. Yeah, so Anything is Possible is, is a kind of... A, I, would, I would call it a sequel. Yeah, um, I guess yeah. But you can very much read them independently because I actually read them the wrong way round. I read Anything is Possible first and then I read Lucy Barton, so you can read them uh. either way round. Um, and it's Anything is Possible is sort of a loosely is connected stories of, of people in Lucy Barton's hometown. And you hear about Lucy Barton from all of these people, she's a kind of common thread throughout all of these people's stories. And it's just a whole cast of people from different, all different ages and backgrounds and experiences. And you get a glimpse of just a moment in their lives and their memories and, and why they are as they are. And it's about how they cope with life and the kind of hidden secrets and disappointments and sadnesses that people who would look perfectly ordinary from the outside have running underneath the, the surface of their lives. And um, Lucy Barton crops up and we learn a bit more about her. And I found that really interesting, actually, to have read about her first, like through the eyes of other people, and then actually afterwards reading her own story. It kind of filled in some gaps for me. But it's really interesting as well because this town in Illinois is a kind of rural, kind of a backwater. Um, but you've got a huge array of different social classes and, and different um, levels of poverty and wealth and life experience within that small town. So it's a real kind of microcosm, perhaps, of, of America itself. Hmm. Mm. Um, so, yes, I didn't, I didn't realise you'd read them in, quote-unquote, the wrong order. Yeah. Um, did, so, yeah, how did... Did you feel like it's still worked equally well that way around? Yeah, I think so, because, I mean, what happened was I saw... The book, The Other Thing is Possible, I bought it the day it came out, I think, because I was like, right, everyone keeps talking about how great Elizabeth Strout is, I'm just going to buy the book. And then I did, and then I started reading it, and I thought, oh, I probably should have read that other book first. <laughs> um, but I didn't have the other book, so I carried on reading it, and then I went to the charity shop, and they just so happened to have my name is Lucy Barton in there, so I read it afterwards. But I think, for me, I actually quite enjoyed that process, because... I didn't know anything about her and actually I think if you'd read the first one first you're sort of reading I would worry that you'd read anything is possible looking for more clues about Lucy Barton whereas I didn't do that yeah I, I read them one straight off the other so um, it's entirely possible that I'm going to blur the lines <laughs> not remember what's what. <laughs> um, and I didn't realize that anything's possible was a sequel until I started reading it um, and I found it's slightly um, annoying in some ways that having built up this mystery with these sort of unspoken corners in My Name is E.C. Martin, that anything is possible often just answers questions that you were left with in the previous one, which some people would probably find quite a relief. But I felt like it sort of cheapened the ambiguities in some way. And I'm trying to think, so there are things about what, like, what their father was like with his mm. sort of, um, I guess, abuse is possibly too heightened a word but not far off um and his you know proclivities i guess um and those were all things that were just in the margins of my name is east and that's what made it to me so powerful to, to to then go straight into a book which is like oh no guys this is what happened <laughs> um i found slightly irksome and i also 
kept reading it as a novel until I realised it wasn't, because it is, as you say, more like Lynx short stories. Mm. Um, I'm sounding quite negative. I still think it was very well written, um, but I did... I don't know if the Lynx short story is... is a, I mean, I love the idea in, in theory, but I realised I haven't actually read any Lynx short stories before. <laughs> um, well, the nearest thing I got is something like Fair Play by Tevi Anson, but they're the same characters throughout. So... This one I just found by the end. It's like, oh no, more characters. I just I don't know who these people are. I've forgotten all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd pop in and out of each other's stories occasionally. Yeah. But we, which just meant that when they came, it was like, oh, I know I've come across his name <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> yeah, who are you again? Who are you again? Whereas if it had just been short stories, I think I'd have been able to just relax a bit, perhaps, and just enjoy the sort of acute and interesting writing that she undoubtedly has. Um. But were you were you fine with the Lynch stories? Have you read many of that sort of book before? No, I haven't, and I wasn't sure. Like, I didn't, I didn't know what I was getting myself into when I started. So I was reading it and being like, oh right, oh okay, this is what's happening. Um, and I was first of all, but I didn't. I first of all, I thought, oh, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna like this then. And actually, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it and how. I felt kind of like I was a bird and I was flitting in and out of people's heads and mm. I could sort of see everybody from above and I, I really liked that ability to zoom in and out of people and I thought, found it quite fun to kind of spot glimpses of people as they entered other people's lives who, who I'd already read about earlier on and I thought it was really clever how she managed to link everybody in a way that wasn't hackneyed or crowbarred in or anything like that. But I think actually what I found quite interesting is that I found anything is possible really kind of uplifting in many ways and just a really, I suppose, what's, how would I describe it? I think it was kind of magical in the way that it, it showed humanity for everything that it is. I thought it was a really wise book. It reminded me very much of something by Anne Tyler, where she kind of sees people in all their vulnerabilities, and there's no judgment of the characters, which I thought was lovely as part of the of the narrative voice. She doesn't tell us how we should feel in any way. We're just these people are just exposed to us as they are, and it's up to us to respond to them in 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 the way that we want to. Um, and that lack of a a narrative voice, I found really refreshing i suppose yeah and i think you're i agree though because um not only is she showing some people who are quite immoral without judgment but it's also it doesn't go the other way where there's quite a few you know characters who haven't had much education and who live yeah. quite simple lives and who who help each other through those lives it never feels like pollyanna-ish no. or like twee or like oh look at these poor silly simple people but you know they get by it does feel like honest depictions of people living fairly trapped you know lives they're not going to leave this community many of them that's what marks lucy out in both books is that she has left even when we're seeing her in her new place that the the main thing is that she's left somewhere else yeah um but it doesn't feel like she's either pitying them particularly or that she's you know giving them a sort of dickensian god bless the poor sort of thing so um it is, yeah, it's sort of narratorless in some ways. It doesn't have, it, it does, as you say, just present them, which, um, yeah, it was, is quite a skill. Yeah, I think that's what makes her, her writing feel quite different when you're reading it. It makes it feel really fresh to me as I was reading. It's so easy to read as well. There's not, it's not prose that you kind of read and stop and think, oh my goodness, that was a beautiful sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's a kind of, profundity to its brevity like you're reading it and you're thinking this is this is real writing like there's it's not full of adjectives and similes and metaphors but it's so tightly crafted there's a real there's a real skill to that and I think again it really does remind me of Anne Tyler that's the most similar writer that I can think of who writes about ordinary people in a very ordinary straightforward way but in a way that makes it so readable without you even noticing the writing. And I think that is true skill there when you get yeah. absolutely lost and you just believe everything that's happening. Yeah. 
And while she gives us this big community in Anything's Possible, it, it's a really spectacular portrait of one particular relationship in My Name is Lizzie Barton, that mother-daughter yeah. um, relationship that I just, I was full of admiration about how not only is the writing simple, but it's so, it's so sparse um, yeah. and, and tells us a little at the same time communicating so much because they're having these awkward conversations where neither of them says very much. They're not really... They're not lying to each other, but they're not being honest with each other. They're not talking about everything they're feeling. They're not um they're not even acting as though it's that strange that they're seeing each other after all this time. Yeah. Um but it's really powerful and it feels just so true and honest that um I mean yeah, that sort of awkwardness, I guess. Yeah, and I think for me what I enjoyed the most about um both of the books really is is their honesty and the fact that you know people's lives are rubbish and there aren't always reasons why people do things and you know when it's never really explained to us why lucy barton is special or why she did escape or what her you know there's there's no she's not written as if she's some kind of remarkable person with these amazing talents um we're never really given that narrative of of what happened in between you know her leaving there's not this kind of description of one day she woke up and decided screw this town I'm getting out of here you know that kind of mm-hmm. thing we don't we don't ever get that it's there's so much that's not said and there's so many gaps that we can fill in and that's what makes Lucy Barton I suppose a bit of an every woman in the sense that you feel you know once she's just decided that she's got something inside of her that she wants to explore and she can't explore that something where she is and so she goes um, but she's not somebody who's depicted as being especially remarkable or brave or wonderful in any way. Certainly not in my um, perspective. You know, she's just as flawed as everybody else. But she's yeah, just like th- this different thing. And my favourite story of, of um, Anything's Possible is definitely the one where she comes back for that chapter. And we see more of her brothers and sisters and their mm-hmm. resentment that she... Well, they, in their mind, was favoured, but also seemingly just resembled that she was the one who left and that she's the one who escaped. Um, and yeah, again, it's it's got those sorts of conversations where it's perhaps more is revealed in that one because they are quite heated conversations with the brothers and sisters about the past. But at the same time, there's still a lot of undercurrents that she manages to weave in mm. without being explicit about them. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's it's actually, I would call it an underwritten novel. Hmm, hmm. Yeah. Um, have you read any of her other novels? Because she's written quite a few, hasn't she? Yes, she has. I really want to. I always look out for them in charity shops, but they're never there, which I always feel is a good sign about a writer. <laughs> That's true, yes. People aren't letting go of them. No. Um, it reminded me a bit of um particularly that short story where it comes back a bit of crow lake by mary lawson have you read that i haven't no um i really enjoyed it i didn't know how how well she's regarded in general but i was very impressed it's a that's i can't remember if that's american or canadian actually but it's it's certainly <laughs> set in, in a in a you know wide rural space with a small town one, one of the other um and that there's a the, one of the daughters has left and got this university education and she's gone into you know, in better commas, bigger and better things. And the novel is sort of the um, exploration of her feeling guilt of having gone and pity for those who stayed and the gradual realisation that, to their mind, what they had was better. Like, they didn't, they weren't longing to escape. They didn't think her life was better just because she'd gone to university. Her life was different and she was different. And, that. and it is this really interesting challenge to that I got out of small town America type of novel or type of character saying actually for you you needed to get out for other people we needed to stay um which i think is uh yeah an interesting sort of rebuke i guess to a to a well-worn narrative yeah um and there's less of that here because you don't get the sense that anyone's particularly happy at staying in 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 their in their small town in illinois or maybe you do is there anyone who's happy about it i can't remember well i feel like nobody's this idea of, oh, you know, you left and, and you left us behind, that kind of thing. That's the idea that, that comes through. It's more like they're annoyed with her for, for, for leaving them rather than they're annoyed with her for leaving in a sense. It, so they're not, they're not jealous. They just wish that she hadn't abandoned them. <laughs> well, I feel like they're offended by the fact that she feels like where they are is not good enough. Mm-hmm. 
because for them it is good enough and they don't want to go anywhere else because there's nothing stopping anyone from going anywhere else, obviously, apart from their own what's going on inside their own heads. But there's no sense that where they live is kind of somewhere that people hate or can't wait to get away from. What I felt like it was this kind of, by her leaving, she was implying that their lives weren't good enough. Oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah, interesting. And there, there are definitely some um, surprising, nay, shocking moments in <laughs> <laughs> Impossible. Can you, think, can you think which story I'm talking about? Maybe, um, maybe yes. many of them. Yeah. Time to think about the camera in the shower. Yes, that was very, <laughs> like, I was like, whoa. What's happening? And it was one of those things where it just slipped into a sentence. She's like, well, she got in, in bed with her husband to watch the woman on the shower, in the yeah. shower, whatever it was, on the laptop. Um, which, yeah, that was, you know, that's, a, I guess that's something that happens. <laughs> but it was, it did show that quiet writing doesn't need to be, you know, dull. <laughs> it can, no. it can have these simple, sentences and these um undramatic feel to the to the scenes without actually just being about undramatic events yeah and i i really loved how she just dropped that in because that is very much how you hear about things like this you know i mean yeah, I, yeah. you know people always i mean I, i'm not saying this always happens to me but sometimes people say <laughs> things to me that i'm really surprised by and i'm like oh you know they're like oh well you know my parents blah 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 or you know i'll actually know my granddad yeah. did this and you're like whoa hang on you know, that's that, but street, truth is stranger than fiction. And there are every single family, every single person has some story of something that's happened to them or someone they know that, that we would, if we read it in a book, we'd think, no, that's ridiculous. But then that is life, isn't it? And I think that's what's so wonderful about this book. And if you were in the situation as this couple are, where you often have tenants or lodgers and you spy on them in the shower then you're not going to be shocked when you do it again no. after many times so we're seeing it it's not in the first person but we're seeing it sort of from their perspective of yes another tenant is in the shower so we're going to go and look at her yeah. <laughs> um so yeah that must have been quite a you know brave authorial choice in some ways to, to not make it a big deal yeah. yeah i think she is a very restrained a very um contained writer she she's she never, she doesn't in these two books. Never overwrites, and it must have been so tempting. Particularly, maybe in that mother-daughter relationship in My Name Is Lucy Martin, to yeah. put on the page everything that's happening in that relationship, everything that they're thinking, even if it's not things that she put in dialogue, but to like pare it back in the way she has, and to trust the reader, I guess, to trust yeah. the reader to ex- accept that not everything is on the page, and to provide some of the answers and wonder about some of the answers um, shows a really mature and talented and yeah, confident writer. Yeah. And one who appreciates that that what she's writing about is something that we can all relate to. Yeah. And we can fill those gaps with our own experiences. Yeah. And in fact, what I really like about it is, as I said, what, maybe I didn't so much like about reading anything as possible straight after is that you don't have to fill the gaps that you can allow some mystery there as you know all of our friendships and relationships we don't know everything about the person that we're we're talking to um and we're not always like oh my gosh what are they thinking right now what 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 emotions are they going through every moment of every day we we accept those things and um just again acknowledge that any sort of human relationship is going to be Partial, I guess. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it does feel like a, quite an antidote to any sort of melodramatic novel. I mean, as I say, I read a lot of 1930s, 40s novels, which I, I love. There's often a scene at the end where the, you know, the heroine twirls around and, let, and shouts at someone about what she's feeling and, you know, or the, you know, the sort of Ibsen-esque <laughs> ending to, yeah. to a scene. To, so to get something that's just very controlled, um, yeah, it's refreshing. Yeah, it is. It is like both of these books, reading them, it felt like I was, you know, it was a breath of fresh air. Yeah, so if you had to, and indeed you do have to, (laughs) 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 such as the podcast, um, which one would you pick? I think for me, I would go for anything as possible because I really enjoyed hearing everyone's stories and I enjoyed that flitting between people and people's experiences I, I still very much like Lucy Barton my name is Lucy Barton but I just enjoyed 
see, I, I found sometimes it was a bit too much just having these sort of this focus on, on just this one person and, and those other characters. And I, I think I just enjoyed the spectrum more. That's really interesting because yes, as, as you probably have gathered, mm. I'm very, very much, my name is Lucy Barton. Um, which I, yeah, I, I would have thought anyone would intriguing. <laughs> so I'd love to hear from other people who've read both of them. Yeah. See which, um, you prefer. Hmm. And I'd like also to hear from people who've read her other books, what they'd recommend. Oh yes, absolutely. Because yes, yeah, she's been going quite steadily for a number of years without, yeah. as far as I'm aware, having any huge success. So I think it's still this these last couple of books that have really. Oh no, oh, no of course, Olive Ketteridge. That was Olive very big, wasn't it? Yeah. Maybe that was her sort of breakthrough. breakthrough yeah. Um, which quite a few people have recommended to me, but I've never read. So now maybe I will. But I'll take a bit of a break first. <laughs> um, great. So we're in complete disagreement today. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, as I say, I'm off to Toronto, so we may have a bit of a break for our next episode, but we'll see. Um, we may, we may not. Um, and the, the books we will be doing in the next episode are two by Sybil Bedford. We'll be doing A Compass Error, which is a novel from 1968, which is why we've picked it, or why I've picked it. <laughs> uh, we'll also be mentioning, it's a, it's a sequel to A Favourite of the Gods, which we'll also mention, but the books we'll be doing against each other are A Compass Error versus, um, Pleasures and Landscapes which was travel writing. Yeah. Um, and which I believe was called, as it was, colon, Pleasures, Landscapes and Justice, perhaps. Yeah. Or, well, that might be a different one. Anyway, I think it's been published under various titles, but the most recent edition was called Pleasures and Landscapes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, comparing a bit of fiction and non-fiction. Very interesting. Um, yeah. Um, and we don't know what the first half is going to be, but if there's, if there's any other nation's literature you'd like us to know very little about, <laughs> um, maybe we could do like Belgian versus Danish, <laughs> leap right in there. But, um, no. Or we, as always, we may come back to bikes versus cars. But, you know, oh my goodness. It's going to happen one day, you know. <laughs> but until then, speak to you soon. And Thank thanks you. for listening. Bye. Bye.